Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. This is Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, hatred, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So to start, I want to to go back a few weeks with me. We are in Genesis chapter 30. It was the sermon that Evan preached. And the way that our uh, preaching cohort works is that we spend... Uh, we kind of know the date of, ideally, this is the way it works. We know the date that we're going to get together and who's going to preach the next sermon uh, and what that, what that text is going to be. So we'll all, the, the, the five of us, will we'll take spend time before we get together on the text, talk about it, and then, we'll, when, then we show up together and we kind of talk about what our main points are and supporting points and, and kind of just have a, a nice long time in the text helping each other out and what we're going to preach next. So then as a, as a result, um, I spent a lot of weeks as well in this Genesis chapter 30 passage that, that Evan preached on. And Evan did a great job. And one of the things that he noticed is in, in Genesis, at the end of that passage, in Genesis 30, verse 24, um, Rachel says something very interesting. Remember in the story, they've, uh, Rachel and Leah are fighting over who can have the most children. They want to be the, the preferred wife of Jacob. They want this offspring, and, and Rachel is barren. And so there's been all of this drama surrounding who, how she's going to come up with children. But then verse 22, God remembers Rachel. And God listened to her, opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph. Now you'd think this woman finally is satisfied. Like she's been longing for a son. She's had, had to give up a, 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 one of her women uh, stewardesses to help father or help have children with Jacob. But now she's finally had one of her own womb. She's finally bore a child. And you'd think, She's satisfied. And one of the things that Evan brought up when he and I were talking about is that we find her yet dissatisfied. Verse 24, she called his name Joseph, which is similar in the Hebrew to the word ad, saying immediately upon the birth of Joseph, may the Lord add to me another son. (laughs) Immediately she's longing for another son. She has this longing, this expectation that in the midst of all of this mess, she makes this incredibly interesting statement. Now, she has this longing for a son that doesn't seem to be resolved even with the birth of a son. She still longs for another son. And I, I think scripture, it does this sometimes when it communicates to us. Sometimes it will communicate something plain, 
like Rachel's uh, desire for another son. And that's, I mean, maybe it's as simple as, you know, she wanted to have more than Leah. So may God give me another son because I want to win this competition of, of offspring. Maybe, and, and likely that is a lot of, lot of her motivation, but sometimes scripture will communicate a, kind of a, a, a deeper or, or higher, whichever way you want to go, a, a reality through what it's saying to us. There's, it might be saying something quite plain while po- pointing to something far greater. There's this persistent awareness seemingly in Rachel for this persistent awareness of longing for something more, a rescuer. She's looking for a redeemer still to come and to be born into the scene. So Christianity, in fact, the posture of the people of God. So I'm using that term Christianity, including the people of God. We believe that there is one church throughout all of time, beginning the Old Testament saints and the New Testament church are all part of one church, one people of God. And so when I say Christianity, Old Testament saints, the people of God, it has all going all the way back to Adam and Eve. Genesis 3:15. Christianity, indeed the people of God, that has always had a posture of waiting and longing. Christianity has always had a posture of waiting and longing. And we see there Genesis 3:15, the curse of the serpent, right? We know the story, hopefully you know the story. You've heard the story of Adam and Eve created the first man and woman and they're in the garden. They have perfect communion with God. They are with him and yet uh, sin enters the world through this serpent who tempts them to say that God is not enough. There's something better, that if you eat of this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll actually be like God himself. You don't need him so much. You can become like him. And they're tempted, and they, they sin, they, and communion with God is broken. And now as a part of that uh, curse upon the serpent for entering into the world and, and, and tempting uh, Adam and Eve to sin, he's given this curse of Enmity, hatred will be between him and the woman's offspring. But the day is coming, the curse says. God puts this right in the word to the serpent. The day is coming where you will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman while he will bruise your head. Uh, crush your head. Well, it, it, will, it will be a defeating blow. And yes, you will bruise the heel of this coming descendant. You will do harm of a type but it will be a wound on the heel, whereas your head will be bruised. It will be crushed. And so in light of that Genesis 3.15, sometimes I'm feeling fancy. I like to call it the proto-euangelion, the first gospel. Uh, it's, it's the first like inkling we have of this good news of a rescuer is coming. This longing that Rachel felt, this longing for something more, was in a certain sense a totally appropriate longing. It's a longing that began in Genesis 3.15, and we can trace it all the way through our Bibles. Eve, after, after, uh, after sin enters the world, she is excited. She has a son, Cain, and she thinks maybe this is the one. And then we know how the story of Cain and Abel goes. It ends terribly. Cain murders his brother, and he is banished. And so then later, Eve hopes Seth. She has a son named Seth, and she hopes maybe this is the one to bring this deliverance. Then we go to Noah. And, we, and Noah's uh, name meaning something like pleasure, like uh, the, the peace. What is it? I can't now. I'm, do I have it in my notes? <laughs> now I've lost. It sounds like rest. There it is. 
not pleasure or peace. Noah's name sounds like rest. Like, then there's this hope that finally a son that's born to us is going to bring us rest. And there's this consistent longing from the people of God for something they don't yet have, but know that they want. We can keep tracing that through the book of Genesis, right? And we've done this. Abraham and Sarah, they're barren and they long for a son. And that's what produces Ishmael. They pursue it through other means. But instead, and finally, Isaac is born. They're longing for a son. We go to Isaac and Rebekah. They're barren as well. And Isaac prays for his wife, you remember? And then Jacob and Esau are born. And then Jacob and Rachel now, we just finished this. They're waiting for Joseph and Benjamin. Benjamin, on and on. The people of God are a longing people, hoping for this rescuer to come. And the reality of this longing makes me think of this famous C.S. Lewis quote. He says that, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And God's people throughout time, they're longing, 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 and, and, and never quite getting what they, they are hoping for. Lewis's point is that the longing which the Christian feels is not a unique emotion, but rather there is a longing that is felt by everyone who lives in this broken world. Everyone feels a sense of longing. Our lives, our existence was not meant to be lived in the world as we know it, with this broken communion between us and our Creator. We were made to live in full communion with Him. This is the joy that Adam and Eve knew. They disobeyed, sin enters the world, and is passed down to all of the rest of us, leaving us all in a state of brokenness and out of communion with God. As a result, there is in all of us a hardwired sense of longing that all is not exactly as it should be. And so I, I think we as Christians, we ought to normalize the idea of longing. It shouldn't come as a surprise when this world leaves us wishing that it was something more than it is. The question is not one of who will find themselves longing, because that will be all of us in this broken world. If you are a kid growing up and there's desires that you've had and you find them frustrated or, or maybe they disappear and, and you yet still have a longing, I want you to know that's not, a, that's, that's not a surprise. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It means there's something wrong with the world. And that longing is actually a, a natural part of existence. We all, with this world is not as it should be. So don't be surprised when, when longing rises up in your heart. Grown-ups, when we live in this world and we look around and we have longings for all sorts of relational things to happen, uh, all sorts of worries and cares and concerns, and we long for something more than what this is, when, when the, the holidays roll around and we have them elevated to be some magical event and they're just always off a little bit, there, there's a longing that is actually right and to be expected. The question isn't whether we will be those who find themselves longing. All will find themselves longing. The question is, where will that longing be directed? 
where will we ultimately place all of that longing? Where can we focus it in towards? What can we focus it in towards? Will our longing be towards the communion and fellowship with our Creator or towards something else, an idol, if you will, that we think will satisfy us? Because what happens in our hearts is we long and we want some satisfaction. We're looking for something to be fulfilled. And so we begin to scan the world around us and say, maybe this can satisfy my longing. Maybe this can get me where I want to go. Maybe this will deliver on this. Maybe this juice will be worth the squeeze. We, don't, you know, but we, we, we look around at all the things that we think will finally pay out. And what we find ourselves is continually longing. When we, when we feed those longings with the things of this world. And so... Our Advent series, the subtitle is Living with Right Longing. We really shouldn't be surprised in this world to find ourselves with longings, but we ought to be concerned about where those longings are focused. This longing for a rescuer felt by the people of God throughout the Old Testament, it finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the... That's the coming son. He is the longed-for son that Advent is about. All of this is pointing forward towards, we're going to go through some more figures in the Old Testament, of longing for this son who the final culmination of that longing is in the incarnation of Jesus Christ that we celebrate at Christmas. God made man, the seed of the woman, seed of Mary, enters into the world to work the incredible miracle of reestablishing communion between the creatures and their creator. Jesus himself lives in full communion with God. The, the communion we want with God but can't acquire because of our sin, Jesus has it. And what does he do? He trades that communion and takes our estrangement upon himself so that every one of us in this room this morning, confessing our estrangement from God as a result of our own sinfulness, can look to Christ. Our estrangement goes upon him and the communion that he has is now given to us by faith so that we might have full relationship. We might be in good standing with our creator. This is the good news of the gospel. This is, the, this is the answer for the longing that we have is for communion with our God found through the work of Jesus Christ. However, as the redeemed people of God, why we go through Advent, as the people of God, those who are brought back into communion with God through the work of Jesus Christ, we live still in an interesting time. We live in a time that some theologians call the already and the not yet. We don't occupy a moment of time like our brothers and sisters uh, before us, before the coming of Christ, where they only looked forward to the coming of the Son. We live in this season where we look back and the Son has been made manifest. Christ has been born of a woman. He has lived the righteous life. He has suffered on a cross under Pontius Pilate. He has resurrected from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he now sits at the right hand of God, interceding for his people. We live after all of that, and yet... We live in the time of it's not yet fully consummated. This world is still broken. This world is still a mess. The longed-for son has already come and has not yet fully restored all things. Although Christ has already come, there is a yet longed-for coming of Christ. That's what the season of Advent is. It's waiting it's waiting. It's, there's a, the coming of our Lord is approaching. And so we spend a, a, a pro, a, a, an elongated time 
to think and reflect specifically on this longing that we have. It's really and truly the, the main focus of Advent. It's not four weeks of Christmas. It, it, is, it is weeks leading up to this. It's, a, it's an expressed moment of longing, an intentional remembering of our longing for our Savior. He was the longed-for Son throughout all of the history of the Old Testament, and today He is still the longed-for Son. Those who have put their faith in Him, who have trusted in Him, turned from their sins and confessed Him as their Savior, we still long for Him. In the same way that they long for Him to in His first appearing, we now, by faith, look back to His first appearing and long for His second coming. It's a major theme throughout our New Testament. Let me ask you this question. What is the end game, end game of Christianity? What is our big final goal? What are we looking forward to? What's Christianity's end game? Is it better people? Like the end game of Christianity is you know, where we're, we're all gathered together so we can just try to be better out there in the world. We want, we want to make better people. Is that the end game of Christianity? Is it love and fellowship between humanity? Are we just trying to make the world a better place? You know, so we, we all gather together and get our energy and we can go out in the world and we can make it a more loving, kind, and, and, and kumbaya place. Is, is that the end game of Christianity? Sometimes I hear statements like this. They'll say that all religions are essentially working toward the same goals. And we're all really trying to get at it the same way. Like I've got friends that say, if you boil down all these different religions, really they're all essentially about the same thing and trying to get at the same goal. No, that's just not true. It's just not true. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2, way back in your New Testament. First, Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. So Titus is kind of small, uh, but it's to the left of Hebrews. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Paul, writing to Titus here, says in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, meaning all kinds of people, bringing salvation for all kinds of people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Well, there you go. I mean, if you stop there, you think, well, that is what everybody wants. We're, we want to you know, live righteously, uh, you know, live self-controlled, upright, godly in this present age. But he goes on. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous to do good works. Here, Paul in his letter to Titus reveals what our ultimate end game is. It is nothing short of the return of our Savior to make all things new. This is our end game when Christ returns and he establishes his kingdom on a new heavens and a new earth. And the reality is until that day comes, all of God's people living in this broken world find ourselves living with longing. Something more. We, we, we long and we hope and we expect and we yearn 
for something more than what we have here. Rejoicing in our communion with God through Jesus Christ, but yet not seeing him face to face. That one day will be accomplished. One day, until that day comes, all of God's people live with longing. And in fact, Paul says only those who live with that longing, only those who live with that longing, who have, he says in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, all those who have loved his appearing, he says those are the ones that will on that final day be given a crown of righteousness. Paul talks, it's, very, it's a fun passage, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, where he, he writes that I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. There is henceforth laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day. And he says, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved or longed, is the way that I memorized it back in the day, but all who have loved his appearing. That there is this reality of the Christian life that realizes that there, at some level there is a disquieting dissatisfaction. We want something more. We are longing for our God to return and to make all things new. Totally satisfied in the already reality of what Christ has accomplished, but yet longing for the not yet when he makes all things new. Why then are we so confused when living in this broken world we find ourselves still so longing? Of course we are longing. We have not yet seen the full consummation of all God's purposes. What is tragic is when we take good and righteous longing for God to make all things new, that longing for full and final communion with God, when we trade it in for something of this world that we think will satisfy. You know, part of me grieves. I think the modern church has not done a great job of preparing people for the longing that we will have while we wait for Christ. It's kind of, uh, you know, in our, in our prosperous Western uh, world, Christianity comes along and says, you know, you're just missing a little more and Christianity to be the icing on the cake and you add Jesus and everything's magic. Everything's wonderful. Longing is gone. Dissatisfaction is gone. Everything's perfect. And we, we do a disservice to people. I've had conversations with kids or adults. They'll say something to the effect of, you know, I, I tried the Jesus thing and it just left me longing. Well, what kind of longing? Because, yeah, there's, 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 I want something more. I'm longing for my Savior. Or I, I, I tried the Jesus thing. It didn't fix the problems I wanted it to. I had these certain sets of problems. I went to God and I asked for it. He didn't fix them. I'm, I'm still longing for him to do something more. Yes, you are. <laughs> We're longing for him to do something more. But the answer is not found then outside of him. It's in continued pursuit of him in that day that he will come and make all things new. This is the, really the problem is that we thought we could come to God and have everything pretty much fixed up like we wanted it to be fixed up. God can't take away all of our longing for one simple reason. He has not made all things new yet. He's not finished. And so until that day, we will have longing. He has not made all things new. We were made for him, and we do not now dwell in the full light of his face. And though Christ has finished the work of redemption, we in the world still groan as we await the final redemption of our bodies. That's what Romans chapter 8, verse 23 says. So, what are we to do with this longing? Just two things as we close. What are we to do with this longing? First thing we do. Ask God to open your eyes to wrongly directed longing and turn from it. 
I was trying to find a way to make wrong and long not sound like two. Like, <laughs> ask God to open your eyes to wrongly directed longing and turn from it. Are you looking for your satisfaction to be fulfilled anywhere outside of God himself? You may look there and even find a measure of satisfaction at times. This is where Satan is so deceiving, is that you can look to things of this world and you can find moments of satisfaction. We all know it. It was, um, it was Castle Gray Skull under my Christmas tree at nine years old. And it was the most amazing, I don't have it anymore, but it was the most amazing thing. And it was so great, you know, for the first three days. And then it was like, well, this is just a plastic, you know, and, and, and sorry, that's it. But, you know, we all have, you can get measures of this satisfaction, longing for relationship and you finally meet someone and they're magical and they're everything you ever thought and hoped they would be and then you get your first fight over a tic-tac or whatever that's a legit story but you get your first fight over and it all blows up and the world will give you taste of, of satisfaction but they will all ultimately fail because you're we're searching for the fulfillment of our longing and all the wrong Places Only restored communion with God himself can truly satisfy. So ask God to open your eyes to wrongly directed longing and turn from it. I have this desire, you know, we're confessing to God. I have this desire for, for whatever and I'm chasing it in all these ways instead of you. God, forgive me. I don't want to chase. I don't want to chase my, my desires, my dissatisfaction on the things of the world that will never satisfy me. Turn from them and then pursue and give your heart to right longing. Turn from wrong longing and turn to right longing. Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. There's a great kid's book on this parable. But he tells this parable in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, warning to his, his followers. He says, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. The, the servants of the master, they're, they're expectant. They're longing for the master's return. They're so ready that when the moment he's there to knock, the door wings flings wide open and they're, they're so excited for their master to return. But the parable goes on. He says, truly I say to you, he, the master, will dress himself for service, have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. He will, they're, they're spending all of their energy to waiting for the master to get home, that they might please him, and that, might, that they might make him happy and, and bring him peace and rest when he enters home. And what they actually find out is that when he returns, he is the one that brings their joy and their peace and their satisfaction. The master is the one who brings the satisfaction. Don't miss the heartbeat of this parable. Why ought we long for his return? Because when it does come, we will find ourselves truly served and satisfied. Not by our service to the master, but by his service for us and rescuing us. Why ought we to live with right longing? We ought to live with the longing for the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because it is the only longing that will one day be truly satisfied. In a true moment, it is the one true moment of delayed gratification that will not disappoint. Our Savior will return. 
and all those who are his, he will gather them to himself and they will be forever with him in his presence in the light of his joy forever. It's the one longing that we have been promised as real as the incarnation was that Christ really lived and really died and really rose is as sure as the promise that he will return and that longing will ultimately be satisfied. Turn from wrong longing and embrace and live for what is right longing. Let's pray. God, would you just, even now in this room as we prepare for communion, Father, would you open our eyes to the things we need to turn from? This is a, as we celebrate communion as a serious meal of participation in the body of Christ, as participation in communion with you, taking you into ourselves in a very spiritual way, in a very real spiritual way. God, would you convict us of sin in the, in the many ways uh, throughout this year, throughout this week, throughout this morning possibly, we have sought satisfaction and fulfillment in the things of this world outside of you. God, would you open our eyes to see them that we might turn from them? And then, Father, would you plant in us a deep, true, and good longing for you, the one who will truly satisfy all of the hopes and desires that we have in you yourself. God, give us eyes to see you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.